0: Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to another nerve-jangling installment of Chilling Suspense. I am, as always, your humble host, Chester Legree. Margot is absent today, uh, coming down with a bit of an illness, so we wish her well, and Margot, if you're listening at home, uh, feel free to take your time and recuperate. I don't mind holding down the ship here. Now, I know many of you have been clamoring for more of The Great Ghosts, for some reason. But uh, don't worry, we have something to tide us over, by a new burgeoning author, by the name Franklin W. Dixon. Uh, It appears to be a serialized story. Uh, I don't know much about it. Uh, It was literally put on my desk right before the show. So, uh, I guess we'll jump into this together, and enjoy... The Hardy Boys, the Tower Treasure. Frank and Joe Hardy clutched the grips of their motorcycles and stared in horror at the oncoming car. It was careening from side to side on the narrow road. He'll hit us! We better climb this hillside and fast! Frank exclaimed as the boys brought their motorcycles to a screeching halt and leapt off. On the double, Joe cried as they started up the steep embankment. To their amazement, the reckless driver suddenly pulled his car hard to the right and turned into a side road on two wheels. The boys expected the car to turn over, but it held the dusty ground and sped off out of sight. Wow! said Joe. Let's get away from here before that crazy guy comes back. That's a dead-end road, you know. The boys scampered back onto their motorcycles and gunned them a bit to get past the intersecting road in a hurry. They rode in silence for a while, gazing at the scene ahead. On their right was an embankment of tumbled rocks and boulders sloped steeply to the water below. From the opposite side rose a jagged cliff. The little-traveled road was winding, and just wide enough for two cars to pass. Boy, I'd hate to fall off the edge of this road, Frank remarked. It's a hundred-foot drop. That's right, Joe agreed. We'd sure be smashed to bits before we ever got to the bottom. Then he smiled. Watch your step, Frank, or Dad's papers won't get delivered. Frank reached into his jacket pocket to be sure several important legal papers which he was to deliver for Mr. Hardy were still there. Relieved to find them, Frank chuckled and said, After the help we gave Dad on his latest cases, he ought to set up the firm of Hardy and Sons. Why not? Joe replied with a broad grin. Isn't he one of the most famous private detectives in the country? And aren't we bright too? Then, becoming serious, he added, I wish we could solve a mystery on our own, though. Frank and Joe, students at Bayport High, were combining business with pleasure this Saturday morning by doing the errand for their father. Even though one boy was dark and the other fair, there was a marked resemblance between the two brothers. Eighteen-year-old Frank was tall and dark. Joe, a year younger, was blonde with blue eyes. They were the only children of Fenton and Laura Hardy. The family lived in Bayport, a small but thriving city of 50,000 inhabitants located on Barmint Bay, three miles inland from the Atlantic Ocean. The two motorcycles whipped along the narrow road that skirted the bay and led to Willowville, the brother's destination. The boys took the next curve neatly and started up a long, steep slope. Here, the road was a mere ribbon and badly in need of repair. Once we get to the top of the hill, it won't be so rough. Frank remarked, as they jounced over the uneven surface. Better road from there into Willowville. Just then, above the sharp putt-putt of their own motors, the two boys heard the roar of a car approaching from their rear at great speed. They took a moment to glance back. Looks like the same guy we saw before, Joe burst out. Good night. At once, the hardy stopped and pulled as close to the edge as they dared. Frank and Joe hopped off and stood poised to leap out of the danger again if necessary. The car hurtled towards them like a shot, just when it seemed as if it could not miss them. The driver swung the wheel about viciously, and the sedan sped past. Whew, that was close, Frank gasped. The car had been traveling at such high speed that the boys had been unable to get the license number or a glimpse of the driver's features. But they had noted that he was hatless and had a shock of red hair. If I ever meet him again, Joe muttered, I'll, I'll. The boy was too excited to finish the threat. Frank relaxed. He must be practicing for some kind of race, he remarked as the dark blue sedan disappeared from sight around the curve ahead. The boys resumed their journey. By the time they rounded the curve and could see Willowville in a valley along the bay beneath them. There was no trace of the rash motorist. He's probably halfway across the state by now, Joe remarked. Unless he's in jail or over a cliff, Frank added. The boys reached Willowville and Frank delivered the legal papers to a lawyer while Joe guarded the motorcycles. When his brother returned, Joe suggested, How about taking the other road back to Bayport? I don't crave going over that bumpy stretch again. Suits me we can stop off at Chet's. Chet Morton, who was a school chum of the Hardy Boys, lived on a farm about a mile out of Bayport. The pride of Chet's life was a bright yellow jalopy which he had named Queen. He worked on it daily to soup up the engine. Frank and Joe retraced their trip for a few miles, then turned on a country road which led to the main highway on which the Morton farm was situated. As they neared Chet's home, Frank suddenly brought his motorcycle to a stop and peered down into a clump of bushes in a deep ditch at the side of the road. Joe, that crazy driver or somebody else had a crack up. Among the tall bushes was an overturned blue sedan. The car was a total wreck and lay wheels upward, a mass of tangled junk. We better see if there's anybody underneath, Joe cried. The boys made their way down the culvert, their hearts pounding. What would they find? A close look into the sedan and in the immediate vicinity proved there was no victim around. Maybe this happened some time ago, said Joe, and, uh... Frank stepped forward and laid his hand on the exposed engine. Joe, it's still warm, he said. The accident occurred a short while ago. Now I'm sure this is the red-haired driver's car. But what happened to him? Joe asked. Is he alive? Did somebody rescue him? What happened? Frank shrugged. One thing I can tell you, either he or somebody else removed the license plates to avoid identification. The brothers were completely puzzled by the whole affair. Since their assistance was not needed at the spot, they climbed out of the culvert and back onto their motorcycles. Before long, they were in sight of the Morton's home, a rambling farmhouse with an apple orchard in the rear. When they drove up the lane, they saw Chet at the barnyard gate. Hi, fella, Joe called. Chet hurried down the lane to meet them. He was a plump boy who loved to eat and was rarely without an apple or a pocket of cookies. His round, freckled face usually wore a smile, but today the Hardy sensed something was wrong. As they brought their motorcycles to a stop, they noticed that their chum's cheery expression was missing. What's the matter? Frank asked. I'm in trouble, Chet replied. You're just in time to help me did you meet a fella driving the queen? Frank and Joe looked at each other blankly. Your car? No, we haven't seen it, said Joe. What happened? It's been stolen. Stolen? Yes, I just came out to the garage to get the queen and she was gone, Chet answered mournfully. Wasn't the car locked? That's the strange part of it. She was locked, although the garage door was open. I can't see how anyone got away with it. A professional job, Frank commented. Auto thieves always carry scores of keys with them. Chet, have you any idea when this happened? No more than 15 minutes ago, because that's when I came home with the car. We're wasting time, Joe cried. Let's chase that thief. But I don't know which way he went, Chet protested. We didn't see him... So he must have gone the other direction, Frank reasoned. Climb on behind me, Chet, Joe urged. The Queen can't go as fast as our motorcycles. We'll catch her in no time. And there was only a little gas in my car anyway, Chet said, excited as he swung himself onto Joe's motorcycle. Maybe it stalled by this time. In a few moments, the boys were tearing down the road in pursuit of the automobile thief. That was the first installment in the Hardy Boys, apparently. And, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't do this. Mr. Dixon, I'm not sure what kind of operation you think we're running here, but this is a respectable radio broadcast that does not deign to speak down to its listeners, we are a bastion of the macabre and the morose. If you really want to come to me with this, frankly it's insulting, I'm going to give you a personal favor and take this abomination of an introduction and, like Stiltskin. Spin your straw into gold. Uh, Don't worry, you don't have to give me any residuals from the edits you will inevitably make. Uh, It's my favor to you and to art itself. It wasn't long before the three boys found what was left of the Queen wrapped around an old oak tree near a particularly sharp bend in the road. Smoke billowed up from under the hood of the bright yellow jalopy. Oh no, Chet said as the brothers slowed their motorcycles. The portly lad hopped off and raced to his distressed automobile. Be careful, Frank cautioned, nervously approaching the wreckage. What kind of jerk nicks a fellow's ride only to crash it like this? Joe pondered. As Chet reached the driver's side door, he gasped. I think there's someone still in there. His hand reached out to pull the door open, but it wouldn't budge. Frank's apprehension grew. It might be the culprit. You should be careful. Chet turned to address the elder Hardy when the window erupted outward in a cascade of glass. Shards struck Chet's round cheeks, cutting them and drawing rivulets of blood, but quickly behind the crystalline bombardment was something else. It resembled the trunk of a tree in length and girth, but its coloration was all wrong. Instead of a deep, warm brown or pale white, the protrusion was a rich plum color. The trunk separated into slime-slicked branches, which blossomed out as they approached Chet's head, then snapped tightly around the boy. It was like watching a snake strike a helpless mouse. The boy kicked and screamed from inside the purple prison, rising up until his feet no longer touched the ground. Chet! Joe screamed, frozen in fear. It was impossible for the brothers to tell what their compatriots said in reply. His screams were unintelligible thanks to the violet mass encircling him. But that unknown cry would be his last words, for the thing gripping poor Chet Morton squeezed tightly, and the boy's lifeless body dropped back to the earth. The brothers wailed in heartbreak and fear, all reason leaving them. Terror had turned them into bewildered prey. It gripped them like a snare as the queen's door buckled outward, torn from its hinges around what was revealed to be a misshapen arm, and that arm belonged to what had once been a man. A man with a vibrant shock of bright red hair. And there you have it, the new and improved Hardy Boys, brought to you by Franklin W. Dixon and yours truly, Chester Legree. Uh, Mr. Dixon, if you're still listening, I want you to know that it's no shame to be a subpar author. The real tragedy is when someone can't realize their own shortcomings and accept a little help. Now, if you want to send me the rest of your manuscripts, I will put in the time and effort to correct them. Otherwise, you can take that trite drivel somewhere where they'll appreciate it, like a landfill or a grade school, perhaps. This seems right up the alley for some sort of acne-riddled youth. But until then, this is Chester Legree saying take care, and I'll see you next time.